Oh, Goslings. Hello, Hello You're very lovely. I'm calling these the Ryans. We have no food. The Ryan Goslings. Oh, nice. I like that. Do you like that? Yeah. Hello, yeah. Ryan Goslings. You think with the way geese walk, there's a look at the Duke of Edinburgh about them. <laughs> this week on Walking the Dog, I went to Reading to chat to TV presenter Simon Thomas. I'd always been aware of Simon from his years presenting Blue Peter and on Sky Sports, but two years ago, he became a high-profile figure for a reason he would never have chosen. He lost his wife, Gemma, to cancer. Simon opened up on social media during his period of loss, which really struck a chord with people as he talked about getting through it all with his son. And now he's written a book about his experience. It's called Love Interrupted, and it's a really moving account of what happened. I had such a nice day out with Simon. I took my dog Raymond along for our riverside stroll, and we talked about a lot of things. What it felt like to suddenly deal with unimaginable loss, the things you learn from grief, and how he's adjusting to a new life with his son. Simon's incredibly open and honest, but he's also a real laugh, so I felt like we were able to change gears between sadness and happiness with no awkwardness at all. And I left feeling really uplifted. Simon's book, Love Interrupted, is available now, and it's an important book that will teach you a lot about loss and learning to live again. I also think I've convinced him to get a dog Although he said he'd like something a bit bigger than Ray, like a Labrador. Cover your ears, Ray Ray. He didn't mean it. If you liked our chat, please do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Here's Simon. Right, come on, Ray. Simon, I'll get Ray's lead. I'm just going to grab me brolly. Right. We need poo bags. Yeah. We need treats. <gasps> I dropped them. One tree gone already. Yeah. You Come on, what? Ray. You lead the way. Do you know what really winds me up with dog poo bags? Go on. It's when some people think, well, I'll put it in a bag, but I'll hang it off a fence. <laughs> <laughs> Leave the cat food alone. <laughs> Was he eating the cat food? Won't do you any good. She doesn't, she doesn't even like it. Come on. Yes, it's odd, that poo bags thing, isn't it? It's a strange one. It's like, well, I've, I've done my bit. I put it in a bag, but I'm going to just leave it on display for everybody. Oh, look at this pretty gate. This house is so beautiful. It is like something out of a... It's where <laughs> families live in children's literature, I think. Well, I was chatting to a mate who lives on the farm the other day when the sun was shining and the kids were running around. He was sort of thinking about what they're going to do future-wise, you know, whether they stay here or mm. get somewhere a bit bigger. I said, honestly, your kids will have so many memories of just running around the fields and stuff around here that don't move. It's such right. a beautiful house. Let's go down this way. Should we go here? Towards the Thames. Come on, Raymond. Honestly, this is Raymond's idea of heaven, is Simon. It? Look at him. He's running in the fields. He's an urban How dog. is he with rivers? Because the Thames is just down here. Um... I think he probably dies if he goes in the river. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like a, a black Labrador just goes leaping in <laughs> and then does full spray on when it I shakes itself know. off at the end. I don't know if I want to risk it. I, yeah, I can't imagine he's one of those sort of colonel's dogs. You know, come along, yeah. let's get in the river. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't introduced the podcast, but I'm going to. I like I this was, relaxed nature. I'm here in, can I say where, I won't say exactly where I am, but... Do you we, want to give us an indication of where we are? Well, we're, we're officially in Reading, but this yeah. part of Reading is called Caversham, or if you're going to be posh, Caversham. Oh, Caversham. <laughs> like Balaam. We used to live in Balham in London. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're actually but, going to go that way, but I was just going to say over there is that's the tree we planted. Oh, let's have a look. And I sh I'm going to say I'm with the very wonderful Simon Thomas, who you will know as Blue Peter presenter, Sky Sports presenter, and more recently, you've become very well known for something I know you would never have chosen, Simon. Yeah. But that was the loss of your wife, Gemma. Yeah. And we've just reached... Well, maybe you want to tell us where we are now. So basically, we've, we live in this amazing place, which is um, it's like a little little gem hidden away in Reading, which is like, it's like being in the countryside. It's, it was an old working farm about 20 years ago, and then he sold up and a developer developed it. So we live in a, a, a part of the old farmhouse, and then at the end of the garden, it's a bit of communal land. You can see the old Thames here. So it's oh, lovely yeah. in the summer. Well, this is summer, but you wouldn't know. No, the you wouldn't. The skies know. are leaden. And the old boats purring past. So this is quite communal land, and it's like a floodplain, so we can never build on here. And I just, I sensed fairly early on that for me and Ethan, probably long term, we won't carry on living here just because of the memories and everything. So I wanted somewhere where he, I didn't want, I didn't want anything in a graveyard. That's not for me. It's for other people, but not for me. Yeah. Somewhere he could come back to you one day if he wanted, and just remember living here, remember the times with Mum, and I thought a tree because it's life, you know. So we planted it last May and actually we had a big celebration. It was her birthday weekend. I kind of wonder what to do. Mm. And so we planted the tree, had a little moment around there, 200 people over, marquee in the garden, and kind of celebrated. So lovely. Yeah, so it's just somewhere for both of us to come back to if we want to. And, you know, it's, it's got a lot of more growing to do. And the great thing is, I don't ask me what the name of the tree is. I can't remember, it's Ace or something. Yeah. But anyway, in the autumn, these go vivid red. It's just amazing. Oh, wow. So, it yeah. says, a wonderful mother, beautiful wife, and beloved daughter and sister, loving, compassionate mist. How lovely. And that rose someone gave us was called a Gemma rose. How do you feel when you come to this? Because, I mean, obviously you see it a lot because it's on your doorstep. Yeah, you know, I don't come down here loads. I can sort of see it from the garden. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's still a little bit surreal, I guess. Mm. I sort of think, gosh, it was less than two years ago we... Had a big party in the garden for her 40th. Yeah. And then it was out. I mean, it's actually only months later she was gone. So yeah, it was yeah. a bit surreal. But I'm really glad I did it. And I just like the idea of in the winter that you know, like with everything, it just looks no sign of life, and then yeah. the buds appear and back it comes. So it's really beautiful, Simon. It's nice, isn't it? It makes me want to plant a tree for my sister. Actually. What did you do? Did we you had. Do um, Should we walk this way? Yeah. Let's 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 oh, stroll past on, the Thames. Well, when my sister died, I mean, similarly to Gemma, actually, which I want to talk to you about, because mm. we're sort of in fast grief club, you know, when <laughs> it happens really quickly like Traumatic that. grief. Yeah. yeah. And with my sister, my brother-in-law wanted to have her in, um, have her, sounds so weird, doesn't it? <laughs> but um, wanted her to be in Highgate Cemetery. Right. Because that's up the road from where we grew up. Okay. So there's a real sense of history for us there. Yeah. And... Now all my family are there, which is handy. Because <laughs> I can go, I always call it like Sunday lunch with the family. I say, I'm just going to go and see my family. <laughs> and I go to the cemetery. <laughs> I like that. But yeah, so I want to talk to you about a lot of stuff today. Because this isn't the only thing that defines you, obviously. No, no. However, I want to start with that. If that's okay we are leaving you. the farm now. Yeah, officially. we're leaving the farm. Bye, officially. farm. I need Come to cut, on, need Raymond. To cut the grass through here. Please mess. keep to the path private land. Raymond, Obviously. to your left is the river, just to let you know. Raymond, to 
you know, Simon, Ray is so excited. Look at him. Well, it's all new and the smells have been new, yeah. haven't they? Because you're based in London. Yeah. yeah so and we're, it's all a bit different. sort of Carrie Bradshaw, <laughs> urban girls duplex. Um, <laughs> That's a good phrase. Yeah, yeah I was saying, I, I, I don't want to just talk about that because mm. it, it doesn't define you. And I know you're attempting to rebuild your life, yeah. which I really respect you for. But I want to start with that because I've just read your book, yeah. which is why I'm interviewing you. It's called Love Interrupted. And I, I really loved it, actually. Oh, thank you. I thought it was very... I'm just going to pick Ray up while we go over the bridge because he's so little, Simon, you might slip yeah, through. Yeah, these are some big gaps on this bridge. <laughs> the beautiful wooden bridge. It's like a poo sticks bridge. It is. Yeah, I love the book. I thought it's such a tough thing to write about grief and I know because I've done it myself. Yeah, but yeah. you managed to be really honest and authentic and deal with... You didn't run away from some of the difficult bits. No. Your anger. No. Yeah. All sorts of things. Depression you, you suffered beforehand and mm. I really respected you for that. Yeah. So you start in the book right in the middle of your tragedy, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And I feel, as someone who's been through grief, I feel comfortable doing that with you. Mm. I don't have to do the ramp. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Let's talk about Blue Peter. We can dive straight in. Yeah. What was it like meeting the Queen? Yeah, I don't need to do that. Yeah. We'll do that after, but you know. <laughs> so tell me how that felt, finding out that Gemma was dying. Oh, gosh. Um, it was like an out-of-body experience. That's probably the best way to describe it. I sort of sat in that room. I, I mean, I was fearing something quite bad because the sort of look on the doctor's faces in the hospital in Oxford where she was mm. was very similar to the look I'd seen on the faces of the doctors at the Royal Barks here in Reading where she was initially diagnosed with blood cancer on a Monday night. And it was that same look of kind of grave concern. And I just thought, oh gosh, and she... It was so turned, quick, Yeah, well, she'd it? fallen unconscious at about half four, quarter five in the morning. Yeah. And at the time, I thought she was just going to sleep. She had a night of headaches and restlessness. And just when I remember coming, well, there's lot, lots of things suddenly happened. Her doctor, consultant, Dr. Andy Pennicott, he arrived in early. So I thought, Where, where's the dog gone? <laughs> you see, this is why I like doing this with you, because... I often do that. We can talk about very serious, sad moments. Well, people talk about I walk too quickly when I walk with them. No, but we can change gear, which I so like. I feel slightly sorry for the... Ray! Ray! Ray's a small dog. He is small, but you know what? He's just... He's fine once he's on grass. Ray, don't disappear into the boatyard. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of a Howard's Way set up here. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. That's well, I mean, the, the only similarity is boats involved, but the, yeah. the stature of the boats and the uh, Apologies weather, to any millennials or Gen Zers listening to that who don't get that reference. Gosh, I Google remember, it. I remember it. I do remember it. So, yeah, so you were saying about Gemma just getting... Because she'd the run-up to it is that she'd suddenly said... Well, she'd gradually just not been feeling great. Hmm. Yeah, well, that was quite a gradual process. The headaches just stayed. They become more frequent and then they last longer. But what turned out to be our last weekend, that's when the descent started to pick up speed in terms of the... Just the sheer fatigue she was suffering. But yeah, I, I mean, that moment, that Friday morning when I sit down in that room, yeah, it's, it's like an out-of-body experience. You're kind of taking it in, but you're not really. And I, I look back on that day and it really wasn't until she'd gone that everything exploded. But I managed to keep some semblance of calm. But I think, I think a big part of that was just you're in such shock that you're yeah. not really processing what's going on. You're just kind of... You're in emergency mode, you're in, right, I've got to do everything I can to be with her, to hold her, to pray with her, to 
tell us stories, what, you know, whatever. And you know, I don't think until we exited that night, having sort of sorted out all the, the various bits and bobs you have to do. I mean, I didn't do any of that. Thankfully, the kind of team of friends around has sorted out all their belongings and stuff. But it wasn't until we sort of walked out about seven o'clock, a couple of hours later into that November chill. It was absolutely freezing. I remember it. That kind of wall of cold just hit me. And mm. then everything just came flooding out. I remember our vicar, David, who was with us. He just he says he nearly blew some poor old boy off his feet because he just let out this blood-curdling no. But that's because everything in the day had been building up. Mm. I just wanted to be there for it, and then it just went bang, and it all came out. Yeah. And presumably you were sort of having to be strong because... Oh, wait, come on! He's now half a mile behind. <laughs> he needs to get on the grass. This is when he comes into his own, I promise. Ray, I feel you're embarrassing us a bit here. The trouble is, by the time he finishes the walk, we'll be in Pangbourne <laughs> and he'll still be in Caversham. Come on, Ray. We'll be in Wind of the Willows land and he'll be wondering where you are. Good boy. Come on. How do you find people's reactions are to small dogs? Because my sister-in-law, Rebecca, yeah. Gemma's sister, she got a miniature dachshund mm -hmm. in the months after Gemma went. I mean, she was planning to get a dog anyway, but I think it just sort of sped up her desire to get, yeah. to get some. Yeah. We had Olive, as she's called, for a week last summer. And how was that? It literally <laughs> was like walking around with a minor celebrity. Yes. Everyone just stopped, literally stopping. You couldn't go anywhere without kids, because I think the big thing to kids is like, well, you must find this with your dog. There's something very unthreatening about a small dog, whereas the big ones, kids are a bit like, oh, well, I don't know what this dog's yes. like. So well, I, th I think Raymond has that sort of cartoon character <laughs> look, doesn't he? I always say he looks like he was a prototype in George Lucas's <laughs> studio. Do you well, know what I mean? And they thought, oh, just make it real smart for yeah. now. So they were like saving money on prosthetics. Or he has, got, he has got a face full of character. I know. He's loving it here, though. How Come long on, have you Raymond. Had him? My sister died and then both my parents died and that yeah. was in three years. So I think it took, it was sort of a year after and a half after that. That was when I, I had this thing that I'd always had the sense of having a, the list I called things this I always talk about doing. Oh, it's fine. Yeah. I'm fine. Things I always talk about doing but never actually do. Right, yeah. And getting a dog was on that list. My late sister, she had a dog called Mr Giggles. That's a fantastic and name. Isn't it great? Mimi, my niece, names him and... I found him really comforting, actually, yeah. after Rachel died, just because we had him in the church after my sister died, and it made it all a bit less daunting for, yeah. for the girls, yeah. and he was just comforting. So, anyway, I'm going to be persuading you by the end of this podcast to get one for you and your son, Ethan. Well, you see, that I, I had a lot of people <laughs> in the early, early weeks on social media saying, get yourself a dog. The way I kind of looked at it when I had my more sane moments, because they were myself, right, I'm going to do this, is I had the very kind of the romantic bit of it, which was the idea of on those lonely evenings, sort of, because I'd probably get a Labrador, so I always love Labrador, something, something that sort I of I see size. you with a Labrador. Just looking up lovingly at me, and <laughs> I'm just sort of stroking it, and I just feel a sense of company. But, of course, what I wasn't thinking about is that give me like a mini bomb going off when the puppy arrives for a few weeks, and I thought, you know, at the most kind of stressful, broken period of my life ever, probably not a good idea to launch a puppy into proceedings, because you'd want to be, I'd want to be you know, as, as good an owner as I can and yeah. nurture it and help with the training and all that kind of thing. I just kind of thought, this is probably not the right time. Well, I made sure I waited. That's why I waited quite a bit. We do have a cat as well. But until he's quite a, um, 
very timid. She's very friendly and loving, but she's very timid. So Olive, who is actually smaller physically than Tilly, yeah. has got a number already. And so she knows <laughs> every time she comes, she gets great pleasure of chasing her out the house. So take me back to, which again, you know, you talk about in the book and describe very well, but just that sense of when you met Gemma, mm. it felt like, it, oh, look at this. <gasps> oh, you see. Oh, do you want to describe what we've just seen? This river is littered with Canadian geese. We have some, are they goslings, they call them? Well, the swan goslings are around as well. You see, look, mm. there's one who's a lot, that's already a lot bigger, the grey one there. Oh, no, I don't like that one beating his chest like sort of Luis Suarez. <laughs> do you know what I mean? There's more down here. Is there another Suarez? Honestly. Oh, so tell me, sorry, I was asking you. Yeah. When you met Gemma, yeah, yeah, I get the real sense that you had a real feeling of, I've met, you know, that terrible cliche, the one, but it, it did feel a bit like that. I hadn't expected to meet her at that party. I didn't know anything about her. I'd actually gone there with my eye on someone else, actually. And that conversation did, <laughs> didn't, go, didn't go brilliantly. And then I see this girl I'd never seen before, and we get chatting, and it's just like one of those moments in life where you, you kind of forget time. You just feel that connection with them, and... I'd always had that stupid paranoia about what people expected me to be like because of being on Blue Peter, that they, they think you're going to be this larger-than-life character, that you're going to have endless stories to regale them with. And I was never like that. I absolutely loved the job. But the, the other part that goes with it, the kind of, in very small letters, the fame side of it, was a novelty for about six months. And after that, I just enjoyed the job, loved it, and it was something I was sort of half good at. And... But I just used to get a little bit too caught up with overthinking how people would be when they met you. And would, mm. they, and would, would they find me just a bit of a disappointment? And she was just very good at just making me feel totally kind of relaxed. Because I, ne I just wanted to be me and not be Simon, the Blue Peter presenter. Because that was my job, but it wasn't, wasn't my and identity. And you, you were presenting Blue Peter when you met her? Is that right? Yeah, or it was. You... Yeah, it was about a third of the way. So I was on it six years, about a third of the way in. But it strikes me, you, I got the sense that that was just not... She was a mum. That's what she wanted to do, really, wasn't she? I know she was working at the time, but she just wanted to have a family with you and... Yeah, I mean, she was quite career-minded. Was she? Yeah. She had, well, the most passionate I saw her. She's very, very passionate about politics. I mean, if I'm ever looking for shards of blessing out of everything that's happened, the one thing I do look at and think, well, at least she hasn't had to see this car crash that is Brexit unfolding, because <laughs> she was very angry about that decision. Yeah, yeah. But she worked for the Electoral Commission for about three years. Yes. And she was very passionate about, you know, she ran an ad campaign with them to try and encourage people to vote and did this mm. advertising campaign with Jim Broadbent doing the voices. And, you know, she, she wow. absolutely loved that. But I think once she became a mum, and we, listen, we were very blessed in terms of me having a job that yeah. meant we had the money to do that, because it's... It's not straightforward it's hard for, for a lot of people, yeah. And, uh, and I think that was exacerbated by, you know, when we get to the, the moment where we, we know we can't have any more kids. We did those two rounds of IVF. I think she just wanted to, like we both did, you kind of, when you get one shot at it, you've got mm. one kid, you know you're only going to do everything once. So, you know, when he got to year, year two, mm. and that's the year at his primary school where that year does the speaking parts and the nativity play. Right. We went to every single showing mm. because we're never going to do it again. Yeah. We'll go to the nativity plays, but it won't be his year to speak. It's so interesting going into your house, which I just have, and I walked in and the first thing I said was, this is the house I always 
dreamed mm. I'd end up in. Yeah. That's not a chat-up line, by the way, because I know you're very happily <laughs> involved with someone. Um, but, you know, just in the sense of I thought, oh, when I'm a grown-up, I'll yeah. be in this kind of house. Yeah, it's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. I think something about that Richard Curtis vibe, that it felt very like the Kitchen in the Richard Curtis film. Mm. And the idea of that all being ripped apart, Yeah. it feels so hideous, you know, when that happened to you. And... I know from losing my sister, the speed of it is tough, isn't it? Mm, yeah, really tough. Because it was in the th- three days from diagnosis to her going, yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I'd never... I've heard stories of where, you know, people just don't know they have cancer. Then they get diagnosed and they're gone in a few weeks. I'd heard a few of those stories. Yeah. I hadn't really heard anything like this before. And I, I know it does happen. It does. But, you know, I was... To say in the book, I always thought you get cancer gives you at least some time to get your head around it and plan for the future, however hard that's going to be. But you just didn't get any of that, so now absolutely no time to think anything through. And then suddenly, bang! I simply couldn't face working at home, just being in a kind of yeah, I understand. I mean, that. You've already seen it and heard mm. it's a peaceful place, but there were days when that peace was oppressive, mm. but other days when it was quite nice. But I mm. could never sit there. But now I can, I can work at home. And it's fine, but and it's not Reading's fault. No. You know, we moved here with, you know, those dreams of it being a house with this two or three kids forever, playing around in. Yeah. yeah, and all those kind of things. And all the worst things that have happened have happened here, but actually some really amazing things have happened here as well. So I'll never look back on this chapter of life and go, it was all yeah. rubbish, because it wasn't. And actually, yeah. even since Gemma's death, there's been some amazing, lovely things have come out of it all. But I just think... You're essentially, when you go through something like this, you are leaving a chapter behind. You're not forgetting it, mm. but you are leaving it behind. And, and the only question is, what do you do with the next chapter? And I want to rewrite it. And I, I just, I do, I know some people listening might think, well, that's ridiculous. How can that be possible? But I do believe life can be as good again, but it's just going to be different. Well, it's interesting because I, my take on it, like you, so still coming out the other side, it's like alcoholism, I think, yeah. grief. In the sense that you're a dry drunk, yeah. you know, it's never not there. No. But you're able to control it, yeah. you know, I suppose, and contain it. And I always think about grief that, you know, it pops up sometimes. It's a weird visitor when you least expect it. I had it the other day. I was driving around and it was really weird. I saw something to do with Donald Trump. And I thought, my sister never knew. And she was like Gemma. She was yeah. political and she yeah. would have been mortified about that. And I thought... God, what would she have said? And I just burst into tears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know what that is, but is it just that reminder that the, you know with Gemma that it's, your book is called Love Interrupted. It's yeah. the life interrupted is a different yeah. kind of grief, yeah. isn't it? And I, I wonder how, what your thoughts are on that. That, I mean, that's a hard one. That was sort of something I came to appreciate in the, the early weeks is this wasn't just your own grief. Yeah. There was different layers to it. It was obviously a, my biggest pain still is not about me. It's about Ethan. Your son, you know, yeah. That he will forever grow up without a mum. And for Gemma's sister, she'll never have another sister. And for her mum, I mean, her dad sadly passed away in January. Her mum will never have another daughter. Now, this is not in some ways kind of cheapening my grief. But, yeah. you know, I hold firm to the belief that I maybe one day could have 
you know, someone to do life with again. And yeah, yeah. You know, I, I could be married again. I hope I am going to be. Yeah. So I could have something different, but in terms of the structure of life, similar. Ethan yeah. can't have another mum. Yeah. And that's been the single hardest thing to deal with is that, you know, as a parent, you want to fix stuff and you want to protect your kids. And you never want an eight-year-old kid learning in the most brutal way how cruel a place the world can be. But he's already had that visited on his doorstep when he was only eight, eight years and a couple of months old. You know, and that's, it's, it's those years ahead for him that are hard oh. to deal with at times. And then the simple fact is, you know, cancer robs thousands of people of life. Yeah. And it's robbed Gemma, if everything had panned out, she lived out the life expectancy in this country for a female, she's lost out on over half of her life yeah. and the privilege of carrying that walk on with her boy and that's that's a really hard thing to deal with it's not it's it's less about yourself it's more about for me about them we're going to go we'll over go this way. Reading's hey, newest bridge look at this little chap here oh lovely how does <laughs> Ray get on with other dogs what, what's the, what's the deal friendly. when big dogs come up well because I, when I sometimes see that if I'm coming through here on my scooter, yeah. I'm thinking, is that dog about to eat the little dog? Do you know, I sometimes, look, there's interest from this oh, yeah, dog. This is a potential first date First scenario. bit of interaction. Hello. What's oh, this seems to be dog. going well so you see, far. See, this, this bit I don't like, <laughs> if I'm being honest. What? The sniff the and the dog sniff the each other. Yeah. Well, isn't that essentially what humans do? Oh. They just put on aftershave, Simon. Well, I'm, bl I'm, I'm bloody glad it doesn't look like that, though. <laughs> you imagine? Well, not in the early imagine part go, of imagine, the evening. Imagine going to a party, you know, the, the standard greeting, right? Crouch down, yeah, everything's good. But I like Crack the on. honesty of the dog, because they're essentially saying, look, this is, a, look, well, look at that, that one's doing. This one is... Ray's gone. Ray, oh, no. Ray, come here, please. I only called him back because I wasn't sure about that other dog. That was like distance. you saying bowl against James Corden. <laughs> this wasn't going to happen. It really wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Look at those ones. No, you see, Ray can't get involved in that. No. No, Ray. That's a bit grumpy. I'm, you know those overprotective mothers that yeah. keep their you sons like at home? He's basically Anthony Perkins in Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> You've got some great lines. That's why I turned them into. Great lines. But um, I was really moved in the book, actually, because I... Oh, I'm just saying how moved I was. And look what's ah, happened. slightly bigger. Yes, oh. what's this? It looks like a border terrier, but it's not. It's quite old. What sort of dog is yours? What sort of dog is that? Oh, that's a border terrier. Oh, I thought it was border, uh, yeah. I got it right, yeah, Simon. I love it when I get the breed. Yeah. 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 Absolutely lovely. 10 out of 10. What's it called? Uh, his name's Diesel. Diesel? Diesel. Yeah. After the jeans or just after the... All the fumes. The, the fumes. Uh, that's, the, that's the previous owner. <laughs> ah, OK. I've yeah. had him since December. Oh, he's lovely. Yeah, he's a good boy, actually. Hello. He came to me wanting to fight everything around, and now he's a good boy. Chill oh, down, isn't he? I've had men like that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a conversation I never thought I'd be hearing on the riverside in Reading. <laughs> Come on, Raymond. Oh, nice, nice to, to see you. Bye-bye. How do you get on with that aspect of having a dog? Did you like the social side of it? Do you know I did? And I actually found it very cathartic. We were always dealing with loss. Yeah. I think I went through, as I know you went through, you know, I've, I've always had issues with depression, I think. Yeah. But really, it really, for me, it was, it was kind of circumstantial. It was after my family died, but it, yeah. was, it was that sort of I don't want to get out of bed mm. thing. And I think when you've got a kid, that's probably helpful in some ways. You have to, you don't have a choice. But yeah. 
I think the dog has been so useful with that structure. Yeah, yeah. And also, Ray, I think this bridge might be too big. I think I'm going to carry you over this bridge, Simon. It's not you. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> you look very slim. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think it just was nice having interactions with mm. people yeah. that didn't require, you know, previously yeah. on ER explanations. Yeah. I could just say, how are you? What sort of He's dog's small? that? You know. uh, how old? Yeah. yeah. And you know what? Sometimes that's all you want. That's all you want, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you. So I was asking about when you had to tell Ethan because my brother-in-law had to do that, mm. and I found it really helpful reading your book mm. because that's always haunted me. I suppose the idea of him having to have that conversation, and he wanted it just to be him and yeah. my niece, which yeah. I understand now. Yeah. The intimacy that it was a dad. Yeah. Telling a daughter, and I want to know what that was like and how on earth you deal with that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I think that was the hardest bit of the book to write, as in when I became most emotionally involved with it. I think part of writing it, I kind of almost had to well, not divorce myself from it, but there, yeah. were, there were times I'd read it back and it was like reading someone else's story. And this might sound a bit bonkers. I'd read it and go, oh, this is really hard and poor things. And you go, what's your story, mate? Because I think, <laughs> To enable you to write it, you almost have to stand back a bit. Yes. But there were certain parts of it where, because I wrote a lot down from probably about week three after she went, in those early mornings when I couldn't sleep, I wrote thousands of words. Yeah. So I had a, a great resource to write off for the rest of the book. But the first few chapters, I had to literally walk myself back through that week. And then when it came to writing about Ethan, I literally yeah. had to put myself back in Dave's car, traveling back from Oxford to Reading, remembering every emotion I was feeling, remember the moment I went into McDonald's, we hadn't eaten all day, and I nearly, nearly exploded with anger at McDonald's for the fact that everyone's just cracking on with a Friday night, my wife's just died. And then the kind of, you the anticipation. You described the noise as well, which I oh, related just, to. It's like an assault, it's like, yeah. everything's going on, kids larking around, chip fries, it, just the soundtrack to a Friday night at McDonald's. Like, it was no one's fault, but you're in this parallel universe all of a sudden you feel as far away from it as you can, yet you are physically present. Mm. And I just wanted to go, shut up, what the fuck is wrong with you? That's what yeah. I wanted to say, but no one's fault there. How were they supposed to know what just happened? Yeah. But I just, yeah, I remember the road here, I'm just going back into what I was feeling as we drove back to Reading. I remember the vivid moment when we come through the gate into the farm and I can see the, the house lights glowing because the kids, like his, his cousins, and he had been taken back to the house and then just literally trembling as I walk back in. And there's no, I've just got to do it. It's like, mm. I can't hang around. And it was no kind of conscious decision, but I just thought I need to do it on my own with him. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, take him, I took him upstairs and he sensed something was coming. You could kind of yeah. still see his eyes now. And, but it was interesting because in the, probably only a couple of weeks after, we went actually very similar to walk to where we're on now into Reading on a Saturday. He said, Daddy, can I ask you something? I said, yeah. He said, he, he said, I thought that Friday night you were coming home to tell me mum was going to be okay because understandably his impression, rightly so, for doctors and nurses, are they are there to make people better. But of course, at that age, you don't have the understanding that sometimes they just simply can't. Yeah. And they couldn't make mummy better. And I explained to him why they couldn't. And he's really just, I love this kind of, just the way he kind of summed it up as a child. He went, oh, it's a bit like, so is it a bit like, Mummy's body was like a car and it broke down. They just couldn't fix it. I mean, it was exactly that, sadly. Yeah. But, um, 
Yeah, that moment. I think it was a really important moment, not just for the obvious reason, but because it was about setting the kind of tone for our relationship going forward is I am going to be here for you. I can't sadly say I'm always going to be here for you because mm. you can't make a kid that promise. Mm. If his mum's just died, how could you possibly say that? Mm. But we were, you know, as we rolled around the floor and it's the most horrific thing hearing your eight-year-old boy howling like that. I'll never want to hear that again, but just holding him, holding him. There was nothing you could say apart from... I'm here for you, I love you, I love you, mummy loved you, I'm here for you, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. I just kept saying it again and again and again until eventually that initial, I describe the book like a tsunami wave crashing in, mm. the kind of flow of water through it kind of calmed down a bit and we could kind of swim back and grab on something and he begins to calm down. But you never want to, I'd hate to see any of my friends have to go through something like that because it's, it's horrific, but you have to do it. I mean, I could have made it easy and just gone, right, well, not easier, but just sort of sat with the family around the kitchen table and put him on my knee and told him in front of everybody but that wouldn't have been right yeah, you know, yeah. at that moment it was a father and a son coming together and absorbing the most horrible news and then going right we'll be okay somehow well it's interesting because you talk about you wanting to make Gemma present for him hmm. as in the sense of he would always have a mother yeah you know yeah. and that's the impression I got from your book and I found it very touching when you talk about how you would say, let's talk about memories of mum, yeah, yeah. you know? And was that something that just struck you instinctively? Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't, because there was no time. I mean, I did talk to a kids' counsellor later that first week. but You don't have the time, though, no, do you? you just have no, to... no. So, you know, in instances where, say, Gemma, she had survived for a bit longer, but ultimately, well, you know, acute myeloid leukemia, the outlook is absolutely horrific. Yeah. You know, only 15% live beyond five years. So even if she got through that week, the outlook wasn't good. But, you know, if you were facing losing her, there would have been a time to have conversations with counsellors who know what they're talking about with kids. Right, what's the best thing to do on that first day? On that, how do I go about telling them? You know, what are the kind of things that's good for them in terms of helping them to begin to begin to process what's happened there's no time for that mm. you're literally plunged into it what are you going to do with it I just had a strong sense that going forward just to keep mum part of the conversation it was happening literally you know that first morning you know he wakes up and my sister Becky was one side of me he was the other in our bed and you know he just he wakes up and he was crying initially and then he sort of said oh you know I just want to tell you about my Christmas list. And I'm thinking, oh, for goodness sake, I don't even thought about Christmas, let alone mm. what you want. And he names the three things he wants. And the third thing is, and I want mummy back. And, you know, it's not even 24 hours. Yeah. And already, yeah. as I described in the book, mum's become part of his Christmas wish list. But, you know, we carried on keeping a part of the conversation. And it's changed over time. You know, yeah. now, it's, now how it tends to work is... Like last night, you know, the weather was so horrible. It's like June. Yeah. And I thought, right, well, let's have a wintry meal. So we had a lovely, <laughs> we had a lovely roast chicken. And I've got a lot better at cooking. You've got, have you got better at cooking? Yeah, and I've, ma you... I've mastered gravy now because gravy is so key. I don't believe in just pouring in some hot water into some granules. I yeah. want to kind of make it. And he really liked the gravy. In fact, he took nearly all of it, slightly to my annoyance. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just sort of said with that thing, oh, what, you know, well, and he marks out 10, do you think mum would give me for that? And he said, nine. It's just those kind of simple yeah. things because Gemma was a very good cook. So we had to break there because there was a problem with the batteries. <laughs> and I gave the producer 
I think it's fair to call them minor evils. It was fine in the end. Brilliant. We're all good. So, and that would be bad, Simon, wouldn't it? I mean, if it was anyone else saying, yeah, I'm just talking about my new movie, whereas, please, can you re-record all that very moving stuff yeah. you just told us about your... We haven't got any of it. ...losing your wife. <laughs> I, do, I do remember writing two chapters of the book one day. I was on a bit of a roll. Yeah. And it was quite emotional stuff. And I was backing up all the time, and suddenly this thing appeared, and it had gone. And my heart sank, not so much because the hassle of rewriting the two chapters before. I don't think I can write it in that way again. No. And thankfully, someone very kindly helped me through it. Did they? But, yeah, but I was Well, that, I've got something to well, tell you, which well, is... We haven't recorded anything. I lost 12,000 words of my oh. book. Oh. Did you ever get them back? No. <gasps> and you know what? It was all about... I sort of, like you, I sort of was interested to talk about the moment yeah. in the intensive care because I feel that we never get to see that side of death. You know, it's all sort of Hollywood around a deathbed, and I love you, whereas well, like, you see, we I, know it's yeah. not like that. Well, I, I sort of toyed with whether, do I start the book with the aftermath, or do I not? Yeah. And I just thought, for whatever reason, I'm just going to Caversham Bridge now, so, you know. <gasps> so Red, Reading's yeah. lacking bridges. Well, let's not get into the traffic problems, because it's just okay. so boring. But I decided that, actually, I think it's really important that people understand what that moment of loss feels yes. like. And I just tried to write it in a way that could, because you, you know this, you have to accept that people, friends, family who've never been through something like this can never fully understand it until they have. Yeah. But I thought, can I take someone as close as the reader's prepared to go to what that moment of loss feels like? And that was all I was trying to do. I thought, it's, I, I, we're so uncomfortable talking about death that if I just pick it up in the aftermath, yeah, we're still yeah. dealing with the same thing, but I've not spoken about the moment that took me to the aftermath. Yeah. So I just thought, I'm, I'm going to write about it. Well, that's what I thought. And I thought, actually, no one had prepared me for what to expect no. in that intensive care unit. And I, I felt sometimes, as my sister particularly, I mean, my dad and I were estranged, so that was a, quite a tough one anyway. But I was there for all three of them. But yeah. I felt for my sister, I thought, well, is someone going to come in and art direct this? Do you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. tell me. I felt like I needed a director to say, this is the bit where you make the speech. This is the bit where you do this. And I thought... Well, when do I say it? When is she going and... But isn't that interesting? I think it's Steve Bland, Rachel Bland's husband, who I've got to know very well. Oh, I yes. think it was him who said this, but yeah. I was chatting with him. He said, you know, there's, there's only two days in your life where you don't have 24 hours, the day you're born and the day you die. Uh, yeah. And he said, the amount of preparation you have as a mum and a dad for giving birth yeah. is limitless. Yeah, yeah. But he said that even though Rachel's illness had been a lot longer than Gemma's and they knew they were on the final lap, he still said there wasn't really enough there to prepare him and his boy Freddie, but more so Steve, because Freddie was so young, for what those moments are going to be like. And I think with what happened with Gemma, it was too, there wasn't time no. for them to sit down and say, right, this is what's going to happen. But I remember, you know, just being in there with her and holding her hand. She's about two hours away, and they came and took all the equipment away. Now, the reason they're doing that is because they wanted her to look as dignified as possible at the end. But the time you go, what are you doing? I thought that. Why, are you, do, why are you doing that? that? I had that with my sister. Have you, have you given up? Yeah. They said, we'll move her into another room. Yeah. So that she can sort of slip away more peacefully. And I thought, well, what are you saying? Do they use and the word slip away? Yeah. Oh, that's a horrible word. This, is, not, Re this is Reading Rowing Club, by the way. Oh, here we go. Yes. There's two... Very athletic people around. There's some re the sort of girls who look like they'd be friends with Kate Middleton. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're, those sort of girls that make me feel very... Jolly hockey sticks? Well, they just make me feel a bit... 
weak and pathetic. Unfit, yeah. Yeah, no, no, Yeah. She's got a big oars on her. Sweep you and your boy into the river in no time. This is the rich end of Reading. So on this right hand side. I'm sorry. She's got a couple of big oars on her. Just just one sweep of her, her big say, right arm and you'd be in the river. I really like that Simon Thomas. I really connected with his story and his courage. However and, and then I heard him saying she's got big oars on her. Oh yeah, the there's so many yeah, geese. These are, these are bigger. These will be a bit more stroppy, I guarantee you. I, I should say actually, I know you because we have a mutual friend in common. The great Connie, Connie Huck. Huck. The lovely Connie yeah. Huck. And I remember her calling me after Gemma had died and she was driving to see you. Yeah, she was. Yeah. And she told me what happened and she knew that my sister had died and left two kids and my brother-in-law had gone through similar stuff to what you were going through. And she just was telling me your story and I just felt really moved by mm. it. And so I remember I reached out to you. I just sent you a letter, I think. You did, email. it was a lovely letter. Well... You were really sweet because you replied and you said, oh, and I thought, God, there were so many I didn't even reply to. Yeah. And I think what I felt was that I wish I'd had someone who'd been through it. Hmm. You know, that's the thing yeah. is that it is, it sounds awful like Smug Death Club, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you find that, that people who'd experienced grief understood it better? Yeah. yeah they get it. They get, they get what it feels like and they get why, what you say to someone and how you say it's all important and they know what to say. We still have this massive problem about how you vocalise your sympathy and that desire to help someone in the right way and don't come out with something really trite or actually don't say anything at all. You know, the, the phrase I struggle with massively for a long time, I still do occasionally when I yeah. see it. I don't, I don't struggle with it, but it annoys me. Is that stay strong, be strong? That's like, oh stop you in your track. You know what I'm talking about. I actually about. just stopped, didn't I? Because <laughs> yeah. I was so angry it was like you hit the brake. <laughs> People are saying it to you like, that's the automatic response, and that's what I'd do. I'd just be strong. But when you've just been snapped in two, which effectively that's what grief and traumatic grief do, it, just, it breaks you apart. Mm. And over time, you begin to stitch yourself back together again. But the, the concept of what, does, what the hell does that look like when this has just happened? And you've also got an eight-year-old boy who's just lost his mum, and someone's saying to you, be strong. I think, so yeah, I think... It always resonated with me more. It, it, it wasn't just, yeah, posh grief club and all that. It was, it was just like, well, this person gets it. Yes. And I feel more like I can just write back to them and say thank you because that's been really important to me. Because it's, it's like with mental health, when you're in those dark places, it's, it's that powerful knowing you're not alone. It's so important yes. because you do feel very alone. And even when I was surrounded by friends and family in those first few weeks, I felt terribly alone, even though there might be... 10 bodies in the lounge because we, you're in this parallel universe where nothing makes sense anymore yeah you're, you're driven by fear about what on earth the future is going to look like how can i bring ethan up on my own that this the conversation is just like i describe it like someone playing a record on half speed at a pub when you're drunk like it's all kind of noise but you can't engage with it you know i'm just looking at these joggers going past the, some of these guys may have been <laughs> caught up in my anger all those months ago because I'd go down the end of the garden when I felt anger because that yeah. was the one emotion I didn't feel comfortable showing in front of Ethan because I think it's very right. disconcerting. Whereas crying and being upset, I think you need to express that because yeah. he needs to see you. His, his mum died, it is sad. Yeah, but <laughs> the anger bit, I probably didn't think he did need to see. So I quite regularly 
pop on the Wellington boots, mm -hmm. dressing gown, because I've been up since probably about half two, half three, and about six in the morning, I just yelled blue murder down the end of the garden. Yeah. And this towpath we're on now stretches all the way down, and it's the other side of the river from the garden where I was shouting. So probably some of these joggers probably went past early in the morning and thought, who is that lunatic? But I thought, bugger it, I need to let this out, because it is it's the analogy I've used a lot of times, yeah. is, is grief is like, if you don't let it out, mm. it's like just gently shaking a fizzy bottle of drink and eventually that top is going to blow off. But yes. if you ease it off yeah. and just let these things out, then it begins to calm down a bit and it's not going to be as messy. I remember speaking to a close friend of Gemma's. Oh, more oh, goslings. Hello, goslings. You're very lovely. I'm calling these the Ryans. We have no food. The Ryan goslings. Oh, nice. I like that. Do you like that? Yeah. Hello, yeah. Ryan goslings. They're a handsome family. Yeah. They, in a way, they're very Hollywood. Do you think with the way Guy Swart, there's a look of the Duke of Edinburgh about them? <laughs> Do you? I mean, they're walking the slightly quicker. actually can tell you lot Slightly, no, slightly quicker right. than he walks these days. You're right. It's the regal. Yeah, that's sort it's of snooping sort of, around, head stretched in the air. It's the sort of people that walk into a room and you go, hello, nice to meet you. You go, hello, I went to Eton. Nice to meet you too. Oh, oh, by the way, I've got to just tell you this, this. These houses are beautiful, well, Simon. So what's? I used to refer I to this. I think this is a sort of Ronnie Corbett type houses, or you know, like comedians in the seventies. Yeah. Should we? Should we about turn here? Yeah, shall we? I'm I was just going to say that down through there is is the that's where the Reading Festival happens. Ah. So if you come down here on that bank holiday Monday, I'm just following at, you. At so about I'll go three o'clock. Yeah. Have you seen the film Shaun of the Dead? Oh yes, yeah. Like that. Basically, all these youngsters <laughs> coming out, literally walking like this, absolutely mong. <laughs> They leave all their tents behind, which winds me up a it's tree. It's so beautiful here, though. Um, Simon, I want to go back to your early, well, about your Reading childhood. Because you were born in Norfolk, is that Yeah, right? Norwich. Yep. Norwich. And what did your parents do? My mum was a full-time mum, mm -hmm. and my dad was a vicar. Right. Yeah. I think I remember that now, because you do mention that in your book. Yeah. And do you think, you know, I know you have beliefs, yeah. and you go to church, yeah. and... Is that inevitable with your dad being a vicar or is that... What, that I have a faith? Yeah. No. No, I don't think it is because I've seen a lot of vicar's kids who go marching off the other way. It's almost like a protest against it. Yeah. But I think what my mum and dad did very well was never impose it on me. Right. Yeah, it just so happened that a lot of my good friends when I was growing up, they went to church as well. So that was Sundays, going to Sunday school was good fun because you were with your mates. But in terms of what you believe, you know, it's inevitably faith is going to be part of family life because your dad's a vicar for heaven's sake, of course it's going to be, but I was never, never felt pressurised into, I have to go to church. I actually went quite a lot because I felt I wanted to go, but also it was nice for my dad, you know. It's quite hard for a vicar when all his kids end up by a certain age absent and never there. So God, some of these joggers are getting quite quick, aren't they? <laughs> some of the ones early gave me hope man. again to get back into running. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the London joggers, I call them. Yeah. Well, your faith was challenged, though, and you acknowledged that. I mean, yeah. not challenged, but when you lost Gemma, I think, was that sort of tough in a way? I would have felt cheated, I think, if I'd have been religious. In some ways, I think, for a time, it almost makes it even more complex than it already is, because you are searching for answers in places that where if you had no faith, you wouldn't be looking for answers. You just go, well, life's shit, and this is horrible, I'm in pain but I don't have to question where on earth God is in all this. Whereas when you have a faith, that is yeah. immediately your question. Well, uh, I say I've put all these hours in Yeah, and I just well. well it's, yeah, but it's more <laughs> just like, I pray for her on the day she's dying. Yeah. I said, God, stop this bleeding. 
please, I don't want my boy to grow up without a mum. You wouldn't bless us with any more kids. Please don't allow his mum to go. Nothing happens. And of course, that, that was when I came out of the hospital that night and that, that wall of cold hits me. Mm. That was where my anger first went. It was to him. It was like, right, why? To God. Why? Why have you done this? But I don't think he did do it. And how do you feel about that now? I think I've gone past the point. I don't, I just, the God I follow, I don't, don't believe ordained for Gemma to die on the 24th of November 2017. Because if he did, right. my faith would stop right there because I don't want anything to do with a God who's like that. Yeah. I just think there's ultimately some things with faith. I mean, that, that's the whole point of faith. It's about putting your, ha your, your hand out in the darkness and hoping to find it held. Mm. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life angsting over this. I get Christians and they sort yeah. of try and... You know, try and encourage you with it. It'd ultimately be a trite platitude, which is, you know, well, we won't find out all the answers in this Until, life. yeah. And I said, well, actually, we may not be fine. may never find out mm. why what happened did happen. But actually, I'm really sad to say, but the, the, the horrible reality is, and the truth is for many thousands of people in this country alone, is that cancer's everywhere. I know. And it's, we were horribly unlucky in terms of that she gets a rare one and it's as quick as it was and the complication that ultimately took her life, which was, you know, bleeding in multiple areas of the brain, mm. was also an unusual complication for acute myeloid leukemia. She was unlucky on a whole number of counts. But in terms of cancer, you know, even since Gemma's died, two friends I know have had, one's got terminal breast cancer. I mean, she's trying new treatment. She lives up here in Caversham. And another one's had a scare with breast cancer and has fortunately come through. And that's all in 18 months. It's everywhere. And so I just sort of now look at it and think we've sadly been on the wrong end of this disease that is yeah. so prevalent that I don't look at it as God's fault. And, and actually, for me, I, I think when hope disappears, the hope in this not being it, then it's like I, I'm not sure from my own personal point of view how I'd process it to think that's it. Yes. It, it, yeah. This is it. You know, you were saying your dad's a vicar, so I was thinking he must have provided you with some sort of was that comforting well no it's been really tough for him because i mean very sadly he's now gone into a home has he he's well, a sound mind but yes. he's not the same man right. that he was and and you know they weren't able because his mobility was so bad no. they couldn't make it to oxford to see Gemma for the final time and i don't think he has been emotionally capable because no. everything he's going through to really yeah be able to support me in the way that he would have done yeah. five ten years ago he, sure. he totally would have done but he he's just dealing with so much and he's of course, and the role home is a massive thing, isn't it? Yeah. And it's just and the roles shift, don't they? You become yeah. the adult, you become the parent of your own parents, in a way. Well, yeah, I mean, it was half term recently. Yeah. I was back there helping mum and yeah. my sister Becky were there, you know, just sorting out the myriad of financial hurdles you have to jump well, the over admin in terms as of pay well, it. And it's Just calm down. Now you come. I don't like these ones with the orange eyes. I no, think they've they're... got me. They're... Don't got... never trust anything with orange eyes. Who is it? Was, some, was it Michael Howard that someone said there's something of the night about him? <laughs> it's like that with these. Is it Anne Whittaker? Oh, it? and he's just gone to the bathroom. Well, this whole towpath is a is poo circus. I mean, this is your toilet, you I people. Know, I, I mean, you're, I say people. Look at him. Yeah. He's on one leg. There is attitude Do you know what? everywhere. He has got so much attitude. He's on one leg. Look at his step. He's the me of the uh, bird and geese world. He's basically the Chris Eubank of geese. <laughs> And he honks. If he had, well. had a monocle and a lorry, <laughs> we'd be there. Yeah, big so you were growing up. Yeah. You went to Birmingham University. I did, is that yeah. Right? Yeah. And you ended up going into TV. Yeah. 
and you auditioned three times. For, no, is no, that, is no. that a lie? Is no, that I some tried three times. Audition? Right, you tried. I got nowhere with the first two. <laughs> I had the standard. Yeah. Thank you for your interest. We'll keep your details on file. Code for trash bin, and it was only on the third attempt that for I got Blue it. Peter. Yeah, and I've, um, I've given you, up. Why did you? I'm interested in why people want to go into that line of work. Well, if you talk to Katie Hill, who I worked with for the first yeah. year. It was a childhood dream of hers. I used to watch the show as a kid and think, my days, that would be amazing to work on it. But I never had a moment where I thought I would. So I just thought that's something way beyond anything you could ever end up doing. But I, I started developing an interest in kind of presenting at university. So we had an internal TV station. Yeah. And they had accrued a load of secondhand equipment from Pebble Mill, which was just down the road in Birmingham, where all the morning output used to come from on the BBC. So I did a Friday lunchtime programme called The Lunchbox. Absolutely terrible. But I remember as it came to leaving university, the girl who produced it said, you know, you're really good at this. Mm, you, you, you should, should really do think it. about it. And I just came out and thought, well, Blue Peter's the one I want to go for. Now it's pigeons. Did you have, I mean, these pigeons, this is like Mary Poppins and Bert. Or it's like being in the middle of a horror movie. <laughs> you see, this, this guy's just bunging out flatbread. That's why there's 600 swans there now. Um, so, I was talking about how you got became a TV yeah. presenter and you're, you're a good-looking bloke. Um, yeah, well... No, but I can imagine you got attention in yeah. that sense. Uh, I like that you admitted that, because, you know, a lot of blokes go, no, I was fat and spotty. Well, and it was the pre-social media era as well on Blue Peter, so it was quite different, so people have to go to a bit of effort to tell you that. But Were you conscious growing up that you were handsome, I no. guess, and that girls no. fancied you? And No, I don't really. I was I mean, as insecure as the rest of them. Never used to think that at all. And even on Blue Peter, I didn't, it took me a long time to get to the point where I was comfortable watching myself back. But, but well, which is actually a really good thing to do because you notice mannerisms. You have to get rid of mistakes. Like, you know, you? when I first started, like we're walking now, we're just walking naturally and talking. I remember doing a, a film at St Paul's Cathedral in my <laughs> first films. I, and when I did walk and talk shots. How like you would the, you have done it? I couldn't hold, well, I was like this. I looked look like a penguin. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know this whole chap off his bike. Nearly called him an old boy. He's got a face like thunder. <laughs> he looked angry, didn't he? <laughs> But, um, he really didn't like us. My producer, Rich, said, Simon, what's going on with your hands? Some people used to say to me, like, oh, you don't sound like you do on TV. Well, partly because I'm not presenting right now, mm. but also partly, yeah, you do put on that kind of... You know, Doreen, my girlfriend, always takes the mick out of me and says, oh, you're doing your presenter voice again. <laughs> well, so I'm not. I'm just putting a bit of effort into my voice rather than just mumbling. But I have a theory for you about that because you mention in the book, and I... Having had so much therapy and being a bore about it, I made connections, which, <laughs> sorry about this, um, but I worked out, you talked about how when you did Blue Peter, mm. the reason that you sort of got the job and they liked you is that you were very much yourself. Yeah. And that's what they wanted for yeah. the show. And I know you go on and you've been very honest about how you struggled a bit with being in the limelight and you yeah. struggled with depression and that was slightly a contributing factor, I think. Yeah. And I wonder whether... Friends of mine who perform have said you have to make a choice. You're either, you put on an act, and the good thing about that is you hang up all that stuff on the coat rack at the end of the working day. Yeah. Or you're yourself, which means you're better, but there's, it's dangerous. Yeah. What and do it, you say to that? It's almost an impossible balance to strike because you say, if, if you're going to be yourself, that was the hard thing to gauge on Blue Peter, is being yourself whilst also not totally being yourself because mm. if, you've had a really guff weekend, 
and you're in a foul mood and whatever's been happening in your private life has just been really difficult. If you're going to be true to yourself, then you'd come on air at five o'clock and go, hello, everyone. I've said a rubbish weekend. Okay, yeah. so we're going to get through the next 20 minutes. I'm going to be making a doll's gym. And uh, yeah, just, just stick with it. You, know, you couldn't do that. Yeah. So you, you were kind of trying to find a balance between, you know, you were having to put on a bit of an act because you quite clearly can't come on air and say that, but also trying to be actually yourself because as our editor mm. at the time, Steve Hocking, used to say, whenever it came to hiring a new presenter, he says, I want the kind of person who I could take round to the viewer's mm. house and have, have a tea with them and they feel at home. Yeah, and, and you that's did what you have wanted. that quality. It's a hard balance to strike. Strange. But you left and you were, you ended up working for Sky. Yeah. For Sky Sports. That's right. Which must have been a nice move because if you're a football fan, that's sort of a dream gig, really, isn't it? I think I lucked out really to do to land two dream jobs. I mean, it took listen, it took me a while to climb the ladder at Sky. Mm. You know, like many who join Sky Sports, their kind of dream, their aim is to one day do the Premier League, and it took quite a lot of years. But I was prepared to put the graft in because I, I do believe in working hard for something. And I think having to wait for Blue Peter for two and a half years selling suits and Selfridges after university wasn't what wasn't really what I planned. But when I got the job, I think it made it even more sweeter because you understood a bit more about the world of work and how actually a lot of people do jobs that aren't particularly, you know, enjoyable. And now I'm doing a job which is massively enjoyable and I think I savoured it even more. And I think the sky, yeah, it's totally, you know, I just felt like I lucked out. I'm just going along. And I actually enjoyed flying under the radar a bit more because you, you were essentially, you are just there. Like the Blue Peter presenters were, along with the pets, the key part of the show. Yeah, you're Their personalities profile, yeah. and everything. Whereas Sky, you are a, you're essentially a facilitator. You get the match on air, you ask the right questions, you get to the breaks, the right montage, and then people tune in for the game, mm. not tuning in for you. You were, again, in the book, you're very honest about this, when people normally aren't, which yeah. I respected you for, particularly in that, let's be honest, quite testosterone fueled Ma world of sports presenting. Yeah. Yeah. And you admitted that you were going through a really, you struggled, this is long before Gemma was sick, but you were going through depression and Anxiety. you were having sort of panic yeah. attacks, weren't you? Yeah. Can you tell me what happened? So it was horrendous. I had a period of depression after, so we had two rounds of IVF to try and have a brother or sister for Ethan and the first one failed, the second one did actually work and then Gemma miscarried about a month later and the kind of all hope was gone on having any more kids and you know, men and women will deal with it in different ways. And I kind of just ended up going to quite a dark place mm. and, and started getting a bit of counselling, took medication and came through it. You know, it was, it was difficult, but came through it. And, you know, that's what I think the experts would describe as logical depression. And you can see where it's born, born yeah. out of. Second one, I, I'm starting to now piece it together a little bit more, but it really was no explanation. It was... It was sort of September time, 2017, so a couple of months away from Gemma, Gemma dying. And I can honestly say that family life was probably as happy as it ever had been. I was second season of Premier League football. And we got past the kind of angry, bitter stage of not being able to have any more kids. Mm. And so when status rocks up on Facebook, you know, oh, three months yeah. scan picture and all that, it didn't drive me to the angry place anymore. Yeah. So we're kind of at peace with everything. Yeah. And then I, don't, I, don't, I could just sort of sense my mood darkening a little bit. And I didn't really understand why. And actually, very interestingly, it was chatting to Gemma's mum the other week. And she said, you know, Gemma texted me at the start of that season 
And she said, you know, there's something not right with Simon. I'm oh, a bit really? worried about him. And I, at that point, I'm not even picking up on it. Yeah. She'd obviously seen a change. And then I wake up one morning, late September, I'm doing a show in the evening for Sky, really simple football talk show, basically. Nothing to worry about. But just woke up. I guess the best way to describe it would be maybe waking up on the morning of a, an A-level yeah. when you've yeah. done no revision. Yeah. That kind of, oh, shit. And yet just you've been not, doing this job for years. Yes. You know. And I remember actually walking down this towpath into Reading here to meet Gemma for lunch that day. And the whole way I'm having this conversation, we're saying, but you can do this. The other, and I've always said, you can't do this. Mm. You know, what, what, if the, what if you dry out with questions? What if the, the guests aren't very talkative? Mm. Just nonsense. But at that time, everything. And that just began to sort of just increase as the weeks went on. And then panic attacks were starting to become quite regular before again. And that, the bizarre thing is, and I've spoken to others about this, that, being on air was your safe place. So it's the run up to it, it's the fear. Yeah, and then you come off air thinking, I've actually had a really good show, but within minutes, and then when the next game comes, all the doubts, all the questions, all the fears are back in on you. And Sky were great, weren't they? And they Brilliant. said, look. Yeah, so good. They said, take as long as you need. And they yeah. were the, the biggest thing Which for me Which turned out to be God, who'd have known, Simon? Well, that was it. What was going to happen next? But they were the, the biggest thing for me with them, what I feared they wouldn't have, yeah. wrongly as it turned out, was understanding. It was that willingness, that desire to understand what you're going through, how they can help, yeah. rather than just saying, we'll give you a couple of weeks off, we'll see you at Stoke for the game in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. You know, that's what I feared would be the reaction, but it was totally the opposite. I'm so glad for you that they were kind and supportive. Well, the whole, the whole climate is changing. I mean, I've done you know, a few seminars at workplaces now where companies are really beginning to address this and put things in place to help yeah. people going through it. And it's fantastic the way the conversation's changing. Simon, talking of the conversation changing, what on earth is going on here? Is it a Hell's Angel? Well, he's the Hell's Angel of mobility scooters. He's a real character in Cowishman. I don't know Do you know, know him? Well, no, I just see him around a lot. I have done for seven years. But yeah, the, the, the Hell's Angel of mobility excellent. scooters. Like, he's got sort of American police car lights on the front. It's brilliant. It's got alloy wheels. Him for my mobility scooter, <laughs> up next. <laughs> I want to ask you, if you don't mind, and this is up to you whether you yeah. want to answer it, but I want to talk about how your life's changed now and moving yeah. forward, you mm. know, and you have met someone, yeah. and I'm really pleased for you. Oh, thank you. Was that something that just sort of happened and it took you by surprise? And Definitely took me by surprise. Yeah, it did. Mainly because I couldn't imagine loving again. Just didn't think, how would that be possible? Mm. She became a kind of, this sort of rock-like figure who, in some of my darkest hours, particularly sort of early last year, when that kind of busy, intense period of support, you know you have that period with grief where for a lot of people, not for everyone, not for everyone, but for most people, they'll describe having that period where everybody gravitates around you. But as life carries on, it begins to go the other way and it becomes a lot quieter again. It's not that people have forgotten you, but they have to get on with life. Yeah. And she was always, I just remember in some of these really bad nights where I'd probably, you know, I had drunk too much and that was always the worst thing to do because it wouldn't... What, drinking? It, yeah, well, it, it took the pain an away alcoholic? for a while. I, I, it depends what you describe as an alcoholic. So I think we all get into the dangerous territory of thinking, well, an alcoholic is someone who literally thinks about a drink first thing in the morning. Yeah. I never did that. Yeah. But I definitely, 
definitely got a drink problem. But you were drunk in secret, didn't you? And I suppose yeah, it... but then I was. We were going it alone at home then, so there, there's no yeah. one to check on me. Yeah, no one that's to say true. don't. Yeah. The problem was it would take the pain away probably for a couple of hours. That sense of loneliness and the pain of grief and everything. But then, in the maelstrom of emotions you're dealing with, adding alcohol into the mix is like setting fire to it, and it would take you. Yeah, it would it's, take you to a very dark place. It's matches in gasoline alley that one, isn't she, it? Yeah, and she was always, she would always pick the phone up. And it's not saying that others didn't because no. they did, but she was the one who always did. I mean, I remember starting to develop feelings for her. She is different to Gemma, but there's also lots of similarities. She's an incredibly compassionate woman. She's a incredibly kind and she she really struck up an amazing relationship with Ethan and that was that was so important to me because yeah, I was very I careful about how did you she take, sort of yeah, became part introducing of introducing her and yeah. all that sort of stuff yeah and I'm very aware that you know my vicar David said there's really two responses to going through what you've gone through right. emotionally you either shut yourself down so that you can never be hurt again yeah. or you open yourself up to the possibility of losing again and he said, you've opened your heart to someone else. And for me, the moment at which I thought, I'm going to fall in love with this woman, I am falling in love with her, was Father's Day last year. And, you know, Father's Day had not been anything massive. So this is Sonny Locke. Oh, are we going yeah. over here? Yeah. I'm following you. Thank you. So after Dean's Farm, the next yeah. house along is in Sonning, and it's George Clooney's. Shut up. Yeah. He bought here a few years ago with Amal. George Clooney? And he was, a, I know that'll get you excited. And he was, he was seen quite a lot. That'll get you turfed out the area. He was seen quite a lot, but I don't think he uses it. I mean, they did a multi-million pound renovation on it. Hey. They built a theatre in the garden. Hey, the George Clooney lives near here. There was much excitement in Sonning when, when he turned up. <laughs> I'm not surprised. That was some, uh, many things I feel sad about. Yeah. But, you know, I, mean, I said to Gemma, she said, oh, I so hope we, bump, we see him one day. And I said, look, the amount of times the school run, because Ethan goes to school in Sonning, just the law of averages, at some point you're going to clock You'll him. You'll see him, You'll never yeah. ever see him. And I thought the irony will be literally the week after she goes, and the first day I take him out of school, George will be through see the him. village. But um, you were telling me about Father's Day, by the way. Yeah, so I, was, I wasn't kind of, we'd never made a massive thing of it. And Dorina and Ethan had sort of plotted a day. Aww. So she very kindly took me out to lunch in Marlowe. And she, there's an artist we both know, uh, he's called Charlie Mackesy. Mm -hmm. If you're on Instagram, he's well worth a follow. It's just yeah. amazing pictures he does. And she'd asked him, she knows him a tiny bit from the church in London she was at, whether she'd do a, he'd do a couple of pictures for me. And they were based on two photos of the three of us. And he's done these two amazing drawings. And both of them, they're kind of impressionist, but yeah, you can so tell it's Gemma yeah. and Ethan and me. And it's like these, this angelic form above us both. It's incredibly powerful. I thought that is so amazingly kind she got a book that her and Ethan had done for me and then we had this lovely afternoon at the fun fair that, that's just the water drain yeah, through okay. the lock for the first time I feel happy and for the first time I think I think I'm going to fall in love with her and it's it's oh, been amazing nice. and I just, you know what as well I think it's because potentially I know it sounds weird but I think those are quite it's quite potentially daunting for her Massively, and it takes yeah. a strength of character in a way you know and a, and a generosity of spirit to say okay she's always going to be part of our life in a way yeah. you know yeah I, I think she, she's got an incredible strength in it that she doesn't always see in herself and yet I see in her and now as you know 
my family, Gemma's family and friends have got to know it. They all see it as well. We're now going over the weir and it's been oh. so much rain, this will be This is like Niagara Falls. Than, yeah, well, come on. <laughs> it, it's, I it, don't get it's, out very it's, much. It's six foot high. You used to present Blue Peter. <laughs> You're used to going to these places. My sister said to me, um, Oh, no. Someone doing the some DIY. They're, they're, they're not touching moment. They're not punching Look, let's walk. Come on, I'm going to do the touch. I mean, the DIY. It was so badly timed. Um, <laughs> I know it's not. Oi, mate, it, but please, we're, we're trying to do an emotional podcast. Really big here. part of the podcast. With, with a grief club people. You're putting in French windows. <laughs> but no, you know, my sister said to me at one point. We didn't really talk about her going and not being yeah. here. That wasn't her way. Hmm. She didn't want to do that when I'm gone. You yeah. Know. There wasn't time, you know, but she did say something to me. She would sometimes turn around to me and just say something and then return to something practical. Yeah. And she said, when I go, she said, I really worry that Adam will feel bad about meeting someone. This makes yeah. me cry even thinking oh. about this. And she said, but I really want him to. Oh. She said, so tell him it's okay. Oh. I'm going to cry about that because it makes me really happy that yeah. you have. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't have that conversation with Gemma. There was no time. But I want you but, to know, I, I suppose yeah. I feel emotional because I feel, I, I, I can't predict what Gemma would have said, but she struck me. It was weird when I read your book, she reminded me of my sister mm. in a lot of ways. And I think, I really you know believe she would worry? have been happy for you, Simon. Do you think, know what her biggest worry would have been yeah. for me personally? I don't think she'd have had any worries about me being a solo parent to Ethan. No. I don't think she would have done, but she would have worried about Simon on his own. It might be for one person, they lose their other half mm -hmm. and they don't ever want to meet anyone again. And do you know what? That is absolutely, totally fine. Yeah. But for others, they will want to experience love again. Now, you know what? What I've found in all this is when you go through something like this, you understand in a much more profound way mm the heart's ability to love. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. in the same way, I mean, I don't know what this is like for parents who yeah. only had Ethan. I say only, he's a massive blessing, but we yeah. weren't able to experience what it's like to have a second or a third kid. But I know that parents will sometimes wonder as the second child approaches, mm. how, do I, how am I going to love them as much as I love my first? But you do. I've really enjoyed our walk, Simon. I feel I've really got to know you. Well, you've got to know Reading as well in Caversham. I mean, certainly the tour in terms of the uh, has been phenomenal. Duck, and, swan, and geese. And I'm population. really happy and for your future because I think if you've been doing some presenting. I know. Yeah. Is that something you want to keep doing? Yeah, I want to. I want to carry on doing what I'm doing. It just I, I feel like with a lot of life now, it's going to be different. Right. You know that when we talked a lot earlier about not making big decisions very early, but I did have to make a decision on Sky. Yeah. And I just felt for a number of reasons that. Almost like when Gemma died, that chapter came to an end. It didn't have to, but it came to an end. Like we got married literally four weeks after I joined Sky. So she was a constant throughout it. And those panic attack moments in those last few weeks of working, one of the biggest reasons I was able to get on air is being able to pick up the phone to her. That voice is now gone. The biggest thing of all is I could not swear this away how how it would work with Ethan you know when his first worry that he expresses on that first Saturday without her yeah is what happens to me at weekends where that was when most of my work happened I understand that you go and do you know what he's been he's been dealt a really yeah. really big blow in life 
I don't want to be absent for him at those key times. And actually, the football season in terms of Christmas, you're massively busy. Once Christmas Day's done, you've got games pretty much every day. Mm. Easter, again, really busy. The summer now, as we're talking, this would normally be my seven or eight weeks off, which were great, apart from the fact that about a week after Ethan breaks up for his six-week holiday, the season's beginning to kick in again. Yeah. But when Gemma was here, it worked. Yeah. Now it's like, well, I don't want him to spend five weeks in his summer holidays being palmed around people and I fit in, you know, life with him when I can. Do I you, that's not do you see yourself, I mean, you get asked to talk a lot about, you know, grief and how we process it and handle it. And yeah. Do you see yourself doing that sort of professionally, you know, a bit more? I don't know. I, I think one thing I don't want to become, without trivialising everything yeah. we're talking about, I don't want to become Dr. Death. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't want every time people see me popping up, so they go, oh, here we go. You know what, I, call, I had to do a talk recently, and I said, yeah, it's me, Griefy McGriefface. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. <laughs> and people again, I mean, you look at your reaction. because yeah. you, you, you well, How do did they look? What do they just look well, at you like, what was that? the room was divided. Yeah. And, and I got, okay, you, the, you, you probably lost someone, the yeah. ones who are laughing. But majority of people sort of got it because I think when you, this is the thing, you know, you're funny. You've been making me laugh. And you want to say to people, it's okay. Yeah. Oh, we, we can make jokes about it. If it's not okay and you go too far, I'll tell you. Yeah. In terms of work going forward, I don't have to rush into it. I just think, yeah. I think like everything is going to look different. And I, th I think it's important because for me now, you've been dealt this. The only question now is what do you do with it? Whether I like it or I don't, I'm creating a new life. It's a new chapter. My bigger passion in terms of what I might do is the kind of the whole area of men and mental health. I think that's, you know, but grief plays into that. It's a big part of it, you know. And that was a really hard thing in the, the weeks after Gemma went because what happened to the depression and anxiety is I was still having the panic attacks. But when you're really down, as yeah. my doctor would say, we, there's no way anymore we can tell what is just about the grief you're going through mm. and what's to do with what you were going through before. It became impossible yeah. to tell. Well, I, I always compare grief to a rock because you lift it up and yeah. all these bugs come out. You know, yeah. all this shit that's been underneath there yeah. all your life, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just stuff emerges, you know, yeah. and you have to learn to deal with it. We've got to the beautiful Richard Curtis farmhouse <laughs> you're over egging it massively simon i've loved our walk oh, it's been a have pleasure. you enjoyed it yeah i lo loved it because i often bike around reading or go on my scooter or run yeah. so you don't take as much in we saw Birds so much we saw so many ducks that wanted to eat you he, look, he looks well, he looks slightly traumatized he's shivering a bit yeah. but that's because he's an urban dog <laughs> <laughs> he's, um he's been de-urbaned i think i can give you a hug because i think you're sufficiently emotionally literate not to shy away from that oh Wow. It's been you, a pleasure. Simon. Thank it's you. It's been lovely. And oh, I'm, I must ask before I yeah. go, are you going to get a dog at some point? Do you know, I think long term I will. There's the cat to consider. Ethan's very protective of Tilly. Mm. And I think it's just about working out life going forward. Has Ray sold you on dogs? Yeah, but I'm, I, I think he's beautiful, he's cute. I'm, I, I like, I'm, I'm a big, bit of a Labrador man. Okay. I want something that's going to. Good day to you, pull. Simon. Bye bye. <laughs> Thanks for coming. How dare he? <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.